Welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato. A big shout out to Bentley Kaplan for hosting last week. He's a hero of mine and everyone at MSCI ESG Research, and he's truly an inspiration and a great person. And the reason I say all that is because he's actually joining me again today, but this time as a guest to talk about how airport management are making sure their staff is safe as more economies tentatively open and more people start to travel again. Then Umar Ashbach joins me to discuss the biofuel industry that was found to have lobbied the U.S. government in early April for a bailout to weather the collapse in demand. And finally, Megan Peterson gives her hot take on the new EU taxonomy, the set of guidelines for lawmakers in the EU to set more stringent environmental disclosures. You know we got to end with the wonky stuff. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. Everybody's got to travel. Cell phone data is showing that people are moving around throughout the globe more than they were in the early months of spring. Crazed by the necessary restrictions on movement. My guest, the cleanest man alive, Bentley Kaplan, writes that airport employees find themselves on the front line of this wanderlust, and their safety might be down to three factors. The health and safety programs that were in place before the pandemic, the ratio of passenger to cargo traffic at the airport, you know how many people versus how many boxes come through your port of entry, and the speed with which countries restricted travel in response to the pandemic initially. So Bentley, Thanks for being my guest this week. Tell me more about your findings. Right. So, so there are two ways we can look at airports in terms of the, the, the way the coronavirus has impacted them. The first is on the, the proportion of, of passengers to air cargo, right? So obviously, like, you know, we travel and wherever we travel, we just see an airport. Um, but w- what's actually going on there is, is the airports are taking in different amounts of passengers and cargo as well. You'll have some airports that are predominantly cargo-based, and for them, you know, the, the coronavirus wouldn't have been as big a deal. They would still have to, you know, keep their own employees safe, and there's still some risk. But if you're if you're a passenger-heavy airport, you know, you would have had first of all this massive risk before you know there were any airport closures, before every, anyone knew necessarily the scope of, of how severe the the COVID pandemic was. Um, but then as you reopen, you know, you're bringing all these travelers potentially back into your airports. Um, and as, as we've seen, you know, the, the, the transmissibility of, of COVID is, is very, very high. So, you know, you don't need necessarily need to be in close contact with people. It can just be breathing, you know, same air or touching the same spaces. Um, so in an airport, you know, you have, you can have pretty close contact with people, but I think the, the major risk is just the sheer volume. Um, you've got airports, um, you know, some of the bigger ones in Europe and, and Asia who are pushing through nine, 10 million people a month um, on average. So that is a, a pretty significant risk to try and handle. Well, you also found that for airports that are in operation, you think that the ones that have had robust safety and health procedures in place before the coronavirus are going to be able to deal with the influx of possibly sick passengers during the coronavirus pandemic. Can you uh, take me through that that thought process, why you came to that conclusion? We, we look at airports, um, health and safety, um, you know, traditionally the, the kind of metrics we were looking at in terms of risk exposure were around 
uh, your risk of injury. So you know, you know, getting you know bumped by an aeroplane, for example. Um, but you know, the airports would have been having uh, their safety programs would have been fairly comprehensive. They would have been addressing not only physical risk, but definitely um, you know the risk of employees you know catching viruses and that sort of thing. Obviously, COVID is unprecedented, but you know, there would have been passengers coming through with the common cold um, and that, you know, if you aren't protecting your employees from, you know, catching that over time, that can really add up into, you know, a huge number of sick days um, or a number of employees down at, at a time. Um, so, you know, airports day to day health and safety programs would have been quite different between different airports, depending on how on how well monitored they were um, and, you know, how rigorous they were with their safety protocols. And that could be a real difference in, um, in first of all, how they protected employees during this volume vulnerable period, you know, before uh, airports were closed. But I think especially looking looking forward, as airports start to open, if you've got a, a well-run machine in terms of your safety controls, and you've got um, your, you know, senior company leadership are tapped into those controls and are closely involved with um, improving it, I think that, you know, those airports have got a much better chance of getting up and running and adapting to this very new sort of risk interface. Whereas those that had, you know, relatively standard programs and were kind of, you know, um, maintaining, you know, uh, margins as, as thin as possible, um, you know, they, they might struggle to quickly, you know, upscale their safety efforts and, and you know, put in new monitoring procedures. So it really was, I think, uh, it'll be an interesting place to watch in the next few months. Okay, so I know I just said people are traveling more, but that's just more than zero because largely people are not moving around that much. And that's difficult for the biofuel industry, which supplies the required fuel additives for gasoline and jet fuel. July through September are the peak driving months in the U.S., and it's projected to be a very subdued season. So in response, the biofuel industry has asked for funds from the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Commodity Credit Corporation to help it survive a demand slump caused by the necessary policies put in place to deal with COVID-19. This is according to an April 1 letter addressed to the U.S. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue, which was seen and reported on by Jared Remshaw of Reuters. So biofuels are made up of biomass or organic materials. Have you ever seen, if you've ever seen the movie Back to the Future, where in the end Doc Brown uses food garbage to power his DeLorean instead of the 1.21 gigawatts of energy the whole damn movie was focused on getting? Well, that is biofuel. That garbage is biofuel. But in ESG, when we talk about a fuel source, we are usually talking about its emissions. If it's a dirty fuel source, then it's risky. If it's a clean fuel source, then there's opportunity shining around it. So before we get into the investor angle here, I think we first have to get in one thing straight. Are biofuels dirty or are they clean? Well, it kind of depends. You see, there are three types of biofuels. There's Gen 1, Gen 2, Gen 3. And I'm not going to bring this up again, so just remember that Gen 1 is dirty and Gen 3 is cleaner, even though all three are technically considered renewable energy. That's because Gen 1 is made from food source crops like corn or animal fats or really controversial crops like palm oil. And Gen 3 is way more sustainable. It's made from some futuristic stuff like microbes and inedible cell walls and grasses and various seaweeds. But even though Gen 1 is tough, it is still cleaner than petrol. That is because the most common form of biofuel is ethanol, specifically corn ethanol, specifically the type of fuel the U.S. biofuel industry is lobbying on behalf of. 
And ethanol is used as a gasoline blend because it adds oxygen, which can actually reduce air pollution. And it is also a higher octane rating than gasoline, which improves the combustion properties of the blended fuel. It is not that much cleaner though, because most Gen 1 biofuels come with some pretty difficult agricultural offsets, but it's still cleaner than gasoline by itself. But to get deeper into this, I have with me a frequent guest on this podcast, Umar Ashfaq, who helps cover the energy industry for us. Umar, let's get started with the bailout first. What is going on here? How might it affect the energy market and the carbon emissions of the U.S. economy? So, well, this isn't the first time the U.S. biofuel industry has lobbied for a bailout. Uh, There was a request in 2007, which was approved by the administration back then. And that wasn't the only one. So there were also bailout requests in 2008, 9, and then in 10 as well. And all of this, I'm only referring to the corn ethanol business. So there's an issue here, and the issue is with the business's long-term sustainability and its reliance on political lobbying to ensure that it remains a going concern. That in itself is a challenge. And for this year, we've seen farmers are already starting to shift their acres from corn to soybean. Soybean goers across the U.S. are intending to increase their acreage for soybean planted up 10% from last year to 84 million acres. And if realized, this will be the third highest planted acreage on record. And this is in part due to the demand for corn being down because of a a reduced demand for gasoline, as well as the coronavirus pandemic, which has led to meatpacking producers coming to more or less a stop. Stocks are at an all-time low. Corn futures are negative as of May 14th, 2020. And all of these are uh, leading to a very tough time for the industry. Yeah, so those stocks are for ethanol companies like Valero, Energy, Archer Daniel, Midland, and Poet. But this is also hurting farmers, which, as you said, are already moving to plant more soybeans in response to the collapsed demand. And this is what makes the biofuel industry so distinct as an ESG concern because it's energy and it's transportation and it's agriculture. I mean, for example, airlines need biofuels to lower their emissions and the industry needs new biofuels as soon as possible. The marine sector, they're going to start to use more biodiesel because they need to lower the sulfur content in their fuels this year. But if the biofuel industry, especially the U.S. biofuel industry, continues to rely on outdated biofuel like corn ethanol, there might be long-term risks to investors that we all have to focus on, but also there might be long-term risks to farmers um, once these things get phased out. The reason corn and other Gen 1 biofuels made from sugar beets or palm oil is the problem is, is how they're grown. Corn uses a lot of pesticides that pollute the water. Um, corn erodes the organic material in soy because of how it's grown at the moment in monoculture. It's um, heavy with pesticides, as I was saying, and it can lead to the loss of natural forests. This is especially true for biofuel made from palm oil rather than just corn. Producers of ethanol are starting to worry a little bit. Nesty, a large European renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel company that produces a lot of its fuel from waste and residue from raw materials just purchased this American company called Mahoney Environmental and they collect and recycle used cooking oil in the US. So that that seems like they're trying to move toward a different generation of biofuels. Valero which had to cut around 950 workers at 14 ethanol plants this year, has been trying to shore up its supply chain by buying its own mills and producing next-generation biofuels. So for me, the main takeaways of this bailout are, one, 
There are a lot of imports in the oil and gas industry that need to also begin to shift away from the industry if they want to survive possibly looming climate regulation. And two, biofuels have a lot of potential. We just need to stop propping up industries that don't make sense. Uh, but what are your thoughts on this, Umar? So one thing's for sure, we do need cleaner alternatives to petrol, particularly for the aviation industry. People are going to travel. Yes, it's a temporary lull, but ultimately travel and transportation is air travel as well as ground transportation is going to pick up. And the cleaner the fuel source used to get them where they want to go, the better. And biofuels for now is part of that equation where relatively cleaner future comes in. And if they and if they can incorporate some of these next generation biofuels, the ones we discussed earlier, like biofuel created from landfills or used cooking oil, then great. Ultimately, these biofuels, the newer newer generation biofuels, are going to be cost competitive. And a good case in point could be how it happened in the utilities industry, um, where power generation from renewable sources was initially a niche market, but now it's cost competitive. So. It's just a heads up for the corn industry. They can learn a thing or two from uh, a power industry as well. And the biofuel industry is going to have to change one way or the other because there are looming regulations that are happening in the EU. There's this thing called the EU taxonomy. And it's basically a disclosure guide for regulators that is coming into effect in December 2021. And it's going to require fund managers and investors to better report on the environmental friendliness of their product. So they can no longer really say, hey, we're an environmentally friendly product without proving it. There's thresholds that are going to be implemented. And to help me understand that because it's kind of a giant document. I have with me Megan Peterson, who covers the EU taxonomy for us. So Megan, kind of take me through this. What is this document? What is it going to be used for? Basically, what does this mean for ESG investors? It means that if you're going to be able to put a stamp on your fund as sustainable or climate-oriented, you're going to have to disclose information and comply with the guidelines that are outlined in the taxonomy. And there's also, so Umar and I just got done talking about biofuels. There's also a section about biofuels in that, correct? Correct. Uh, Biofuels are mentioned in the specific activities that could potentially qualify as environmental activities. By the way, advanced biofuels does not include corn or palm oil or anything like that or feedstocks. Also, um, including the really strict eligibility to advanced biofuels, they're also requiring a threshold that is forward-looking. So you'll actually have to prove that there's advancements on uh, this threshold every five years. So you have to show improvement. See, I think that's the major thing right there. The fact that this is a significant, long-term, forward-looking and aspirational agenda that they set for. It's setting a pretty high bar. I mean, the biofuel thing I pushed you on was because we just talked about it. And I know, you know, it's just one specific example of a bigger point of why the EU taxonomy is such a big deal. Um, Do you think it's going to work? Do you think this this forward looking action is actually going to bear fruit? Um, I think that it will increase disclosure. So more information will be out there. But it is 
as it stands right now, it's a comply or explain regime. So either you can say that your product is environmentally friendly um, and and detail why, um, but you're really going to have to consider whether those investments are going to comply with the really stringent thresholds that are right now in the taxonomy. So it could disincentivize investors if the if the funds don't meet those very specific thresholds. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Umar and Megan and Bentley for joining me this week to discuss the news with an ESG twist. A special shout out to Antonios Panagiotopoulos. He's a colleague of ours that you did not hear on this, but he was influential and really helped with the first section on ethanol. We actually recorded something with him, but the recording got corrupted. And I wanted to thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Don't forget to rate and review us, uh, especially now. I'm sitting at home twiddling my thumbs and trying to figure out how to get better. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks again and talk to you next week. MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.